Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I'm, I'm, I've been looking forward to a uh, part two with my next guest, who I interviewed when her fabulous book, Uncultured, first came out last year in uh, 2022. Um, Daniela Mistinek Young was born and raised in the Children of God cult, uh, escaped it, got involved with the military, became a captain in the intelligence corps of the army, was one of the first women who was involved with ground combat. Um, and, and and served in Afghanistan and came to a, a realization of trauma that she had left one cult and felt like she was in another cult. Um, and when we first did a recording, when her book came out, we had some technical issues, so it was audio only. So, Daniela, it's great to see you again. Congratulations on getting your master's in industrial and organizational psychology from Harvard Extension School. Uh, kudos to you. You're so smart and you're so talented and so articulate that I thought it would be incredible to have another conversation with you about everything you've learned now that your book came out. It was a fabulous success. You're working on another book. So welcome, Daniela, to The Influence Continuum. Thank you so much, Steve. I am so excited to be here. I have learned so much from you. And let me tell you that like happy full circle thing, literally 20 years from when I left the call month to month was when Harvard conferred the degree. Graduation was on my birthday. Tom Hanks was the speaker. It was so lovely. Um, some people have called my book a Forrest Gump story. It's wonderful. <laughs> and that's when we got to meet for the first time in person. And I got to meet your your husband as well. Uh, we had dinner together when you came up to get your your uh, yep. diploma. Yep. So kudos yeah. to you. Our, our first cult get together. It was so fun. Well, it, it's really, you know, meeting online is not the same as sitting and having a meal together and schmoozing, to use a Yiddish term, because uh, then you really feel like you're, in, in, you know, you're meeting the person. So, right. So, Daniela, you know, you're active online. I see you often on Instagram and such, but you've um, done speeches and talks. And um, I really want to do an, a d deeper dive with you now that you are uh, 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 got your master's. So you are uh, a scholar. Join the crowd of us academics now that hang shingles up and say, you know, we did the work. It wasn't easy, but we did it. Um, so I, I guess I'm going to just say a few more words when, when I reflect back on reading your book, because I had no idea, because your book was the first one I ever read, of someone who was born in a cult who went experienced the military. So I got to see your experiences in a in 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 these you know eyes these lenses but especially a, a woman's eyes being a guy who would know that there was rape culture in the US military and when i read what one of your seniors said well you're going to be raped uh you know it's like not an if it's a when i was shocked and I guess naive and, and didn't realize that was an issue. Didn't realize that was an issue to say to me. Yeah. So, so the, the platform is yours. My listeners, I'm sure are so interested. Please don't assume they ever heard you speak before. So right. give us a little, you know, set up with the children of God and how you got in the military. And then we can dive into that, this deeper water. 
Yes. So the children of God, I describe as one of these many sort of cults that popped up in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, David Berg came out of conservative evangelicalism. And the way I explain it is he took most of conservative evangelicalism, but he took their control of sex and he flipped it. He called it free love. I call it forced polyamory. Mm-hmm. Um I call it trafficking myself. It took me many, many years to see that. But yes, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so Children of God was the the front was that it was love, faith and Jesus. And the reality was that it was religious prostitution, uh, pedophilia for God, child trafficking. Right. They even made this very good whitewash switch from sex cult in the 80s to performing twice in the White House in the 90s. Yeah, so... And, like, just major child trafficking, child education ring. Right. Um, And that's what I was a part of growing up, was I was this actress. I called myself Little Apocalypse Lindsay Lohan. Um, And I was (laughs) this actress on these videos. Seriously, there was a video of me rapping end-time Bible verses in downtown Rio with six other white children. Um, Right. But let me just say for my listeners, because they've heard me speak multiple times about New Apostolic Reformation as a major network of destructive mind control cults, that Berg wasn't just a teacher of conservative evangelicalism. He said he was the prophet. He called himself Moses David, and his word was God's word. And Satan was outside uh, the cult, and you know the outside world was evil, and everyone was systemites. And he went on to actually say women should be happy hookers for Jesus and do flirty fishing, as well as I mean, and it was all documented stuff from people that I've worked with who've exited this horrific right. cult. And yeah. I happen to have a theory. Daniela, that I I have yet to be able to nail down. But I have a theory that escapees of the children of God, since they had no formal education, but they had been groomed on how to do sex work, were picked up homeless by pimps who then adopted the religious rap that they're doing stuff for God. And actually, it cross-pollinated to the pimp and trafficking world in a very uh, mm-hmm. deleterious way. But anyway, back back and to you. Even I would say even what you say is relevant as far as those who got out and said, you know, I had a couple siblings said, all I know how to do is dance. And so became strippers, right? I worked at a restaurant where you wear as little clothing as possible mm-hmm. to pay my way through college. But even the concept of just using your body to make money, right? I say I... I sold my body twice to pay for college, Mm -hmm. right? Once working at this restaurant and then once when I signed my life to the military. Hmm. Um, You know, that's sort of the the escape route. But anyway, so my grandfather joined the Children of God. Then my mother was born into the Children of God and it was at the very center. She was married to the prophet when she was 13. Symbolically, by the time she's 15, I'm born my father is older than my grandfather, you know, works for the prophet. Um, and by the time I was 15, I was done, right? I was this argumentative little kid, probably neurodiverse, hyperlexic, loves to read, and I'm not getting what I need. So I want out. Yep. And I'm also getting terribly abused, of course. So I want out from the time I'm six. And I managed to get away at 15. Yep which I then describe as like is followed by six years of just being alone and a kind of a drift in the world. Mm -hmm. But I do it with this outward sheen of success. Um, Well, you were a stellar student, if I remember (laughs) your story. Yeah. But children, I have found it is very common for children who grow up in high control religions to then go straight into being super students or going into the military. Um, And one of the things I found for myself, so in high school and college, part of this was a struggle for survival, but I had to make straight A's and I had to work a ton of jobs. 
And in many ways, I think I created my own high control environment in college where I never had to sort of be alone and think because I had to make straight A's in an education that I didn't know how to get. And I was working at 1.44 jobs. Well, let me interrupt if I may say as a therapist, look the way I look at your story, you were born in this cult, your parents were in the cult, you didn't know what was normal, so you were on automatic pilot. Like one of the things I I do with my clients who are born in cults is teach them what would be a normal childhood. What's a normal, you know, what are healthy parents like who don't beat you and torture you and abuse you, but love you, keep you safe and tell you how gorgeous you are, like you are with, with your kids, right? You, you're, right. you're healing yourself by the way you're parenting your kids. Trigger, triggering and then healing is well, parenting, this right? Is, just... This is, you know, this is healing and growing up. And so I, I guess I was reacting to you saying, I, I created my own cult environment. And I'm like, no, that was, you were just working off the, the, the script you were given until you yeah. got free and yeah. was like, whoa, yeah. wait a minute, this isn't normal yeah. and healthy. And here's what healthy yeah. boundaries are like. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And even as far as identity wise, like for me, the only thing I had was try to fit in as what you sort of look like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Texas girl. Um, And it took me many years to realize like that identity is just as foreign to me as any other. Right. And, and now I have created my own, but at the time I graduate college, I'm valedictorian. I go straight into the military. Um, Well, it was a structure, right? It it offered structure. Right. And at the time, I could have given you a million reasons for why I've joined the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've always been very good at making an argument. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I look back, I say I joined the military for every single reason that my grandfather likely joined a cult mm-hmm. in the 60s. It was I, I needed structure. You know, if I hadn't joined the military, I would have had a PhD by 25. I would have just stayed. Um, you're so bright. Academia. I have no doubt. Um, you still may get needed, a PhD. I needed guidance. Yeah. I, I think I was I was bright, but I was afraid. Yeah. Um, one of the things I even learned through writing my book and then looking back, um, it was actually when I had to make the decision if I was going to record my own audiobook or have a professional do it. And I was like, I just want somebody to tell me what to do. This is a really big choice. And I realized that my whole life I've been trying to find a mentor that would tell me exactly what to do. Yeah. And that's not a mentor. Right. (laughs) That's maybe more like a cult leader. Right. So let's, Um, let's, let's hit a pin on that and just say another theme of healing is moving from an, a pseudo self with all this programmed crap with an external locus of control where you want someone to tell you what to do, how to think, how to feel, what's proper, to developing an internal locus of control where you learn to trust yourself as your own authority based on your life experiences and your wisdom combined and having healthy mentors that can offer advice not tell you what to do, but can share their journey. But the thing is about life is we make mistakes. And the critical thing is, do we make new mistakes or do we keep making the same mistake over and over again? That means we haven't learned the lesson that that we need to to heal. So so let's go Um, further. Keep unpacking this. Yeah, and and to this point, I think that it's not random that me with my perfectionism and my fear of making mistakes, I go into the military, which is a no-mistake environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I commission into the military. I go into the officer program. My goal is to be an intelligence officer, which is kind of hard to get. Um, another reason that I joined the military was a toxic relationship, which is of course, you know, another kind of parallel to Well, you were getting away from a boyfriend that was toxic. Um, Yeah. 
husband. husband I mean, I was I was still in the clutches when I joined, but it was I was beginning to get away. Yeah. Um, and on my my first day in basic training. Um, so so two very significant things, only one I've talked about and one I've talked about with you offline. Mm -hmm. um, but the first thing was, you know, right away you so first you spend a week in reception where they're sort of dehumanizing you giving you your uniforms turning you into a piece of the machine yeah reception by the way is the same thing they call that week at prison mm -hmm. <laughs> and everyone's going through that week and you're saying, given a I number done? and a uniform right right what have i done to my life they change your name right because yep. all of a sudden you're going by your last name yep and then you're herded onto the bus for real basic training to begin. Yeah, describe it. And the first thing that happens, right, you're told to pack all of your gear into this duffel bag, which makes this duffel bag approximately 50 pounds. Mm -hmm. The bus gets to a stop and the yelling just starts. And it's, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Um, and, and you're just all shuffling to the exit. And then proceeds a two to three hour... Uh, process. And I swear they wait for a day that it's either raining or just boiling hot, right, to start each class, like the weather is miserable. And you're going to stand there for two to three hours and hold this bag over your head. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going through this exercise. And I just have this thought, oh, I just joined another cult. So you were lined and, up with men and some other women. Mm -hmm. You've given this uniform. And the guys are holding approximately the same weight of duffel bag as the women are expected to hold. Yes. Yes. Um, maybe they, they like to think it's a self-sorting problem because my gear is slightly smaller than their gear. But in reality... You know, my experience in the military is I was carrying a 50 pound rucksack, but I only weighed 100 pounds. Yeah. And 280 pound guy was also carrying a 50 pound rucksack. Yeah. Um, Important. And this is so much of the, the cult think process. But so what's significant to me about this duffel bag exercise is this is the first wacky ritual that the cult puts you through. Well, and they want obedience. It is, it is, it is both impossible right? Nobody can do it. And it's irrational, yep. right? None of your listeners have ever gone outside and held 50 pounds above their head for three hours just for fun. Yep. And once you do something irrational for the group, you, you're in, right? And that day very much is the day where we go to the barracks at night and some people quit, mm -hmm. which usually is through a sort of performative suicide attempt. Hmm. Um, wow. And then, uh, but they tell you the whole time, they're like, the fastest way out of here is to graduate. Like, it is going to be miserable. Um, but the other people are committed to the group. Mm -hmm. But then the second thing that happens in this same formation, even before really getting into the duffel bag thing, is they tell you, you take everything your recruiter told you and throw it out the window. We don't want to hear it. Um, and this is kind of the first thing to me that is puts the military as culty is it's a black and white contract, right? You don't get to negotiate any part of it. Um, so let me, let me just add, I've heard from former military people, veterans who've read combating cult mind control and said, you know, the military is a cult, right? And I'm like, well, it's different because there's informed consent. You know what you're signing up for. There's limitations, et cetera. And now I'm hearing you say, well, the, the basic training says it doesn't matter what you are promised by the recruiter. Yes, they they say that. And it's not. You, you have signed a black and white contract. You have, this is why we call it signing your life away. Like my decision was I can give up three years of my life mm -hmm. for the benefits that I believe I will get from it. Mm -hmm. But I, I like to talk about, you knew what you were signing up for as kind of a thought stopping cliche yeah. that a lot of organizations use, yep. but specifically in the U S military, I think very similar to children of God, like it takes six months to onboard mm -hmm. 
because so much of that is learning the language and the ways of thinking. So in no way do you know what you're signing up for. Like I had a husband that just went through it six months before me and wrote me letters all about it. Mm -hmm. In no way did I know what I was signing up for. Mm -hmm. Like I really thought I did. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I actually say that in the book. Like I thought I knew what I was signing up for. I was wrong. So I want to just add a teaching point when I read um, Edgar Schein, who is one of the legends in organizational psychology. When I read his book, Coercive Persuasion, about Chinese communist brainwashing, he used Kurt Lewin's model of unfreezing, changing, refreezing. And I applied it to my experience in the Moonies. They break you down, who you were before. They indoctrinate you into the new identity, and then they want to refreeze that identity so that you you stay in that one and not right. who you were prior. Right. Right. And so military basic training famously uses these same models. Yep. And in fact, you know, was built by psychologists who kind of studied this. Um, and one of the interesting things in my book, so in my life, I thought my PTSD and my trauma mm-hmm. was triggered by deployment, by suddenly being behind these big walls again around dangerous men. Mm-hmm. My editor notices my flashbacks start in basic training. Mm. That experience was so familiar to me from childhood. Mm-hmm. And tell you what, I, I get the same thing out of Prince Harry's book, going from royal Spare. family into military. Spare. Spare. Uh-huh. Yeah. So give um, us a couple of examples, please, of a, f- a flashback <laughs> from basic training back to the So. Cult. The one that I open the book with is I'm having a nightmare. I'm running through the woods. I'm getting chased down by our own people. We have weapons. um, But it's a game that we're playing as children running away from the Antichrist. Um, And at the end of this game, we are martyred. And we had a comic book teaching us that if your attackers gang rape you, you should use that as an opportunity to convert them to Jesus. Um, So night patrols, right? Night patrols is another one that in just, just the security posture in general, in in all of the top secret things I've done with the military, I have never been surprised by the security posture because we maintained that same level of security posture in the children of God. So proceed to the outside world, right. right? Not not talking about things, not going home if you suspect somebody's following you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way you would lock down secret materials, classification, right? The children of God had a classification system of what was for members only. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just like the U.S. has what is for U.S. only is literally what it's called. Yes. So my um, my supposition is that the cult learned it from the military, not the military learned it from. I, I correct. Because um, the military has been around for a long time and, you know, other something countries. Something that's interesting that I've noticed is a lot of us children that grow up in high control religions. I call them often, destructive cults, but you can call right. them high, <laughs> high control um, religions if you feel better. So, Anything that has this concept of lying is a good thing. Mm. Lying to the outside world is a good thing, whether that that's a family that calls it a circle of trust, yeah. whether that's the Mormons that call it lying for the Lord or the children of God that calls it deceivers yet true. Heavenly um, deception tra- is the Mooney's term. Yep. And it transfers very well to other secrecy things in life. Mm-hmm. So whether that's government, and military secret careers, mm-hmm. or whether that's things like having affairs, or just generally not knowing when lying is appropriate or not appropriate. Right. Um, I think that's like an interesting part of healing, yeah. too. Yeah, I, I um, it took me a long time to. I mean, I, I, one could say I'm still healing from the Moonies, but the biggest was the first year or two, but. Um, You know, early on in my life, I was like, it's too complicated to lie ever because, like, 
this is one life you get to live. So if you're choosing to have people in your life, why would you lie to them about anything? I mean, you may not want to tell them, you know what? You just offended me by the way you, what you just said and screw you. You may hold that to yourself, but that's for me not the same as lying and saying, oh yeah, I, 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 I went there and did this and you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I, I do want to add, so a little bit of nuance Please. to my argument about the military, Please. right? Is that, so for sure, I think the military is a total institution, right? Which as defined by Irvin Goffman is when you live and work separate from society with like situated people with a formal overlay. Yep. But my sort of realization, and it was, very dramatic. I'm staring at this definition of cult and I'm thinking about the army as I do. And I was like, okay, so I now have a 10 part definition of cult. And I will, when I'm talking to the military, I will highlight four of them in red. And I say, these ones don't really apply. Right. So six out of 10, we're not that bad. These are still the areas I would look for toxicity in your culture, but not that bad. As soon as you deploy, and I was trying to describe this for a decade. I was like, when we're back home, it's kind of culty. But as soon as we deploy to long-term trainings or deployment, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, those four things I highlighted in red very much apply. Mm -hmm. And so my realization was when you go to deploy for a year, for example, which I've done twice, you are going in for a cultic experience. Mm -hmm. And I personally think knowing that tells us so many things. First of all, who's the leader that we are putting in charge? We are putting a charismatic leader in charge of this cult experience. Yep. Makes, makes a lot of sense to educate yourself more on narcissism and charisma and what those things are. Yep. That's not how we choose commanders mm -hmm. in the military. Mm -hmm. Secondly, why are we not educating the followers on the sign of what it looks like when the logic starts breaking down, mm -hmm. right? Like we have intelligence briefs, we should have like cult briefs. Right. Um, and, you know, the exit costs are just so high. Mm -hmm. right? So on a, on a deployment, there's two ways out of a deployment, which is death or ending your career. Right. Those are the only two ways to get out of or the situation. Or crippling, you know, injury, I guess. Right, right. Um, which is kind of what happens to me in the book. Right. Um, but, uh, and we do see that, right? We see much like soldiers that wanted to get out of Vietnam, you know, we see in Afghanistan soldiers causing themselves injury yeah. because they're just so desperate to get out of that situation. And I definitely got to that point myself. Um, but even, Steve, with the leader that I loved, you know, I was having a conversation with him and I was like, yeah, the, the military is pretty cult-like and it does require the certain level of devotion. And I looked at him and I was like, sir, I'm so glad we didn't all go off somewhere where you were our ultimate leader and we had to do everything you said and we couldn't interact with the greater world. Oh, wait, we did. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, even still love this man his entire officer team still talks to each other he was an amazing leader mm -hmm. he was willing willing to put his legal name in the book while he was still active duty mm. but we still had a cult experience under him well he was, was he was subjected to this he adapted he rose right. in the ranks because you're not going to get promoted unless you toe mm -hmm. the line know mm -hmm. the language r respect all yep. the rigid rules and regulations and another thing that I think you will appreciate, as you mentioned, like the cult got this from the military. And the more and more I study cults, you all these big ones, you see a moment where they get some sort of senior military officers into the cult. And this does two things, right? It gives the cult more validity mm -hmm. because you have these senior military people, but also like military officers know how to be cult leaders. Yeah. Like we know how to do this kind of all or nothing, black or white thinking. And I usually find that these military officers then rise, you know, rise in the cult ranks. 
and become part of the like senior leadership. And that is not surprising to me at all. Right. So, you know, my model, the bite model of authoritarian control. And if you understand that you can control people by controlling their behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions uh, to make them rigid and obedient, uh, then, you know, there's a, a playbook mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that goes beyond just black and white thinking, or you need to obey me or else there'll be punishment. But I, I, I yeah. want to just circle back and compliment you because, you know, a lot of the public does don't understand when you're raised in an environment like you were, um, you know how to work. Like you went into the military and you outperformed the top guys. You ran faster, you ran longer, and they wanted, and this is why I think you were such a stellar example in terms of, well, maybe women can be in the army and maybe women deserve to be captains and higher. But- you see, even the way you said that, yeah, I appreciate as a psychologist that understands cults, you said you know how to work, right? Because I have to explain to so many readers, I wasn't just an amazing runner, right? Like that wasn't what it was. In fact, if the test for if the one thing you had to do to be a good officer had been get an A in chemistry, I would have gotten an A in chemistry. Right. And I can't do science. Yeah, perfectionism. It, it was... You know, I got an A and call for fire, uh, really hard math. Mm-hmm. And actually, my my colleagues were upset. They were like, she doesn't understand the thing. But I was like, I can work hard enough to pass the test. Yep. And so I, you know, it's one of these things people say, like, is CrossFit a cult or is running a cult? And like, running is not a cult. The way that Daniela Mestinek Young interacted with running was absolutely cult-like, mm-hmm. including just sacrifice. Right? Yeah, it was I the ran cult fast. identity. Yeah. I, I ran faster than 96% of male soldiers because I was willing to just leave it all out there yep. every single day yep. because that's what a cult asks you to do. Yeah, but I, I just, I, 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 I hope you don't mind me complimenting you. You're brilliant. You're, you're, Thank you. You have the the genetics and you're willing to make the effort to learn the epigenetics to be excellent and whatever you decide is important to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just now, my current life is balancing that, you know, like I'm also really proud that I went and like broke these barriers for women. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I like to say we won our war. We desegregated the military by gender. Um, I'm so proud to have been like a part of that. But I also see where it's like my tendency to like want a mission, to want to change the world. Right. Um, and so I, it's just something I try to balance. I still days. have, I still feel like I have a mission and I want to change the world, but I, I identify as a progressive Jew. So that's part of our ideology of called tikkun olam, like repair the world. But I think that helps, you know, to have purpose and clarity over what your values are. And like, what are you doing on earth? Is it just to uh, accumulate money and things? Or do you want to make a difference? Do you want to help people? You want to contribute to knowledge and humanity? So I want to push you now to, if you had your way to reform the military, because I believe we need a military to because there are really bad actors and dictators who want to impose their their fascist totalitarian ways on us and i believe in human rights and so i do think there's a place to have yeah. to 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 train people to kill on command without hesitation in the in a context um, but how how would we begin to reform the military if you had your way? So, first of all, I have an entire 10-step process already for reforming just rape culture in the military. Well, let's talk and, about and, rape and then uh, go into the... So- 
if we could do that separately. But uh, I just wanted to say, so my so my number one thing for reforming this or making it, I hate this idea, but like good cults. Um, well, that's what I believe. I, th- I think part of it is recognizing yep. that we are doing that, right? So for example, we only talk about trauma as it can come from combat. We don't talk about the fact that having your personality systematically broken and stripped down while being handed a bayonet and said, kill, 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 blood makes the grass grow. We don't talk about how that can be. Well, that's the association Um, that's training. And I think, you know, for me, part of why, in my understanding of cults, they are always bad is because the self-sacrifice for the mission almost always leads to exploitation of labor. And the military is a huge offender on this. Right. So, But, you know, I have the influence continuum, which I did my dissertation on, and I'm probably singular because I haven't heard other cult experts talk about it, but I do think there are healthy cults all the way to authoritarianism. So I do think there's it's yeah, a continuum, and, though. It's not a binary. And, and in this conversation right. of a continuum, yep. what is missing is there's just this assumption that the military is a good cult. And people say it to me all the time. They're like, well, we need the military. We're always going to have war. Guilty. Um, and so that doesn't automatically make you a good cult. I agree. So one of my one of my concepts is you have cult con levels, just like you have defense con levels. Okay. Okay, Kevin, James, and Henry, for this mission, you special operations, we're going to need you to ramp up to cult con seven, right? We need you to give it all to the mission. Okay, great. But then now, what is the organization giving back Hmm. in aftercare to these soldiers that have just had to self-sacrifice for the mission, right? Good point. Like, where where is the balance? So what I say is you can, if you want to be a good cult, there's a lot of work I want to see you do to show me that you are a good cult. Something else that I think you will love is military culture has this very strict policy of don't listen to the new guys and don't listen to anybody who's quitting. So basically- Information control or manipulation. Right. Mm-hmm. And until you're deep enough into it that you know studies show six months to a year inside a regular organization mm-hmm. is enough that you're not seeing like the problems. Right. But if you try to bring up anything in the military critical in any way and you're new- yeah, you get what I call shut up and sit down, Lieutenant, mm. is the response. And as soon as you are leaving, as soon as your leadership knows you are leaving, mm-hmm. I wrote a whole book about comparisons of the military and the cult, and I didn't even get to the leaving, mm. the shunning that happens. Mm. The second you tell your boss, the second I told my boss I was not staying in the military, my evaluation went from top block to medium block. Mm. Because you're getting out, they're not wasting, they can only give so many people a top block. Hmm. The second you say you're getting out, it's sit down in that corner and don't infect other soldiers with your idea of freedom in the outside world. That's fascinating. So when you when you said you were going out, was it because your deployment was coming to an end or because you had such a crisis of trauma that you... No, I personally made it very clear to the leadership in my way of resigning mm-hmm. that they were losing one of their, in black and white prints, best intelligence officers because of the constant sexism, the constant cult thing, just all of the things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and and that is part of what and and when I did that at war, everyone around me said, "What are you doing? You don't tell them that you're planning to leave. You wait till you get home." So interesting. So one of the parallels that's coming to my mind, I just want to mention, is just uh, like when I worked with a woman who left Opus Dei, which is a Catholic extremist cult group. Um, she she wanted to leave. She was miserable. They sent her to a psychiatrist in Opus Day, who had an obligation to keep her in Opus Day, and so 
there was no room to discuss what the organization was doing to make her depressed and suicidal. Mm -hmm. And he just kept giving her mm -hmm. medications, right? Because of this obligation to the institution. And my, my understanding is that military psychologists and psychiatrists have a similar parallel role. Their job is to get people back out in the field as soon as possible and not necessarily do the work that a psychologist... That's the same with military medical professionals, and that is the same misunderstanding that gets a lot of soldiers in trouble with the legal or judicial process, because the lawyer works for the boss for the unit. Mm -hmm. You have to go find a specific lawyer for soldiers. Like, you got to go find your public defender, sort of, if you want a lawyer that That's is going to represent fascinating. you. But then also one of the things you said, mm -hmm. right? So people will say... The military can't be a cult because you can decide when to get out. And I have so many caveats to that. Please tell <laughs> me, is, educate me. Because that's at, at any given time, probably 80% of soldiers on active duty are under a service obligation. You incur a service obligation. When I signed up, I had to be in for three years or I'd go to jail. Mm. Right. And and five years on reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, or inactive reserve, but they can call you back. And if I had gone to the captain's school, I would have incurred another two-year service obligation. Anytime they move you and you don't get to choose if you move, you incur a one or two-year service obligation. Anytime they send you to a military school and you don't get to choose if you go or not, you incur a service obligation. Mm -hmm. And then anytime you are activated, deployed to training or deployment, you are under a, a stop loss, so you cannot leave. Mm -hmm. So most of the soldiers in the military cannot leave at will. But even for those ones that can, it takes one year to six months, six months to a year, for your paperwork to be processed, during which time the U.S. military spends millions and millions of dollars on an office they call retention which is much like to keep you in actual psychologist, but it's, it's psychological operations yep. to keep soldiers in. Mm. And so, you know, I often say like, it was much easier to leave the children of God than it was to get out of the U S army. Right. Like I, I don't think this concept of you knew what you signed up for, or you're free to leave in actuality. Um, Thank you for educating for me. And, um, I, I, I plead guilty that I, I have been uh, operating in a more wishful thinking, perhaps, frame around the military. I also just want to comment, Margaret Singer, who is an army psychologist who did pioneering work on Chinese communist brainwashing uh, and wrote the forward to combating, uh, she categorically dismissed the idea that the military were, was was doing mind control. It was a mind control cult. So I disagreed with her on that. But she was like categorical, even though she wasn't an army psychologist when I met her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I like to say I'm just I set out to be the first cult scholar that is not giving the military an exemption. Well, again, I mean, um, because I just think it's a matter of it's it's not good or bad. It's a spectrum, right. like you say. And e like even when you're saying, yes, this deployment is going to be 100 percent of a cultic experience, right. it still very much matters right. who you're under. Right. And like what that environment is, what that culture is. Right. Totally. If the military fix nothing but listen to the new people coming in and listen to the people leaving why they're leaving. If that was all you fixed, you would improve that culture a hundred times. That's fascinating. Um, Are you familiar? But I also admit to being very naive and thinking like the military was just good, mm -hmm. a good organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from the inside being like, I don't know, I don't know. Um, and, and it took me a long time to have this kind of awakening. Uh, and I imagine in years to come, you'll have more and more clarity as you have more perspective uh, as you, and, and oh, your yes. husband's a, a very decorated military veteran too, wasn't he a helicopter gunship pilot or something? 
He was. And he was in the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. So that was like the most kind of high, highly dangerous operations you can do, which was not the most fun in my life when he was in that unit and I was at home being a mom. But my literal expertise is how helicopter pilots die in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, so it's yeah, so traumatizing. Interesting times. So a couple of quick things that I want to mention. Are you familiar with Ira Chalif and his book, Courageous Followership and uh, Intelligent Disobedience? I don't think so. So um, I interviewed Ira. I highly recommend it. My understanding is the military is having him come and do trainings and why it's important is that he sets out in his books that in any organization, if there's clarity of mission, that, that the organization says, this is what we're about, that it's up to the followers to hold the leadership accountable if they're not following the mission and the values. And so it's an attempt at least to empower followers or lower rank soldiers if in fact he is training the military and they're really embracing this to speak up and say, you know, this isn't right. This is violating our rules of engagement or whatever. What, what do you think? I think that's perfect. And I think that's what like, so, so there is already room in the military for this. Mm -hmm. Basically, ever since World War II, we have been questioning the blind obedience yep. concept, right? And so in the U.S. military, it is built in. So first of all, officers do not swear allegiance to the officers above them. They swear allegiance to the Constitution. Oh. And you are expected to disobey any unlawful order. Mm -hmm. That's part of what makes it hard to be an officer. Mm -hmm. So for example, the Colonel with the football, how everybody was scared that a certain cult like president was just going to go off. You mean and Trump? Press the, the nuclear buttons. I'm, yes. I, I'm sorry. Um, I wrote the book. So, <laughs> And, and one of the things there is like, there's a reason it's a army Colonel who is holding the football, right? Because he or she is essentially expected to die in place before obeying an order that would be unlawful. Uh, that, um, I didn't so know lots that. Of nuance, lots of nuance I there, didn't know it was an army colonel or that he couldn't give the football to the president who's supposedly the commander-in-chief if it was... So, yeah, there's four different people. There's four different checks and balances okay. between button and president. Okay. Uh, and again, lots of nuance there because, as I say, so the military has been teaching this for years. Okay. In fact, my husband, as you mentioned, flew Chinooks, right? So he flew a combat helicopter pilot, but a Chinook, it, you have the pilots and you have the, the people on the guns. And those are different people. Um, on an Apache, the pilot is the gun. So that's the same person. So Apache pilots have to make that decision all the time. And my husband always just said he was happy that he didn't have to make that decision. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, in the fog of war, that can be very difficult. Yeah, and you can kill um, civilians that you don't mean to. But I will say this idea certainly isn't enough in army culture as it should be. Right. Um, in in a lot of special operating units, it definitely is. And one of the ways it's explained is I can be the leader. I can absolutely be in charge. But if I'm standing silhouetted in front of a window at night, you can either let me take a bullet from a sniper or you can knock me down. Yeah. Um, right. You know, which one do you want? So a lot of the special units are much better at working in this kind of like you're supposed to question, you're supposed okay. to be a team, you're supposed to have different expertise. But overall in military culture, like I was always uncomfortable when they want to do an investigation, they just appoint a lieutenant or a captain to do the investigation. Mm -hmm. And I always, the first meeting with any soldier, I said, please get your own attorney, you know, off the record. Like it, it is inhumane to me that you are trained 
complete obedience to me. But now you're supposed to be able to say, wait, I want an attorney. I don't want to answer your questions. Mm -hmm. You know, that that culture is not yet in the military. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to be. And honestly, we don't need unquestioning obedience in the kinds of wars that we're fighting. Um, We are not fighting and probably never will again be fighting wars where we're throwing thousands or millions of bodies at a thing that we just need unquestioning obedience. We need, you know, I needed my soldiers to be very nimble and quick and analytical. In fact, I would even fight with leaders that wanted to hear sir at the end of every sentence. Right. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not training my analysts to do that mm-hmm. because it's going to impact their ability to analyze. Right. Right. I'm remembering um, a, an episode in your book where you went, were at a village and you were, you were like, wait a minute, there's no children. There's a problem. And they're like, wow, you just saved a whole platoon. This is a hundred percent. And let me tell you, Steve, I was telling this story as I do often, right? So I go into a village. I'm the only woman. The men notice that the sand looks funny. And I notice that there are no women and children anywhere. Right. And so together we realize, oh, there's a bomb there. Yeah. Right. So I'm telling this story. Unknowingly, the man filming is a special operations guy, mm-hmm. puts down his camera in a huff and says to me, do you mean to tell me that none of the men realized there were no women and children there? Because we bre- we get briefed that all the time. And I'm like, oh, you're making me so happy. This is now going to be part of the story. Yep. Right? Because I, I know you get briefed that. I'm the intelligence officer. Right. I'm the one that briefs you. Right. But even if you had come to me and asked me what to look for, I couldn't have said, that tingly feeling you're going to get as a woman who looks forward to seeing the children who all of a sudden doesn't see the children. Right. Right. And so it's like, I, short of being in the room, having a diverse perspective. Yep. So valuable. uh, You know, that's what's going to keep you safe. So, and you know, to be fair, one of my, the other great leaders that is talked about in the book is this young Lieutenant who who does exactly this. Mm. He says, first of all, these women are on our team. And if you treat any of them poorly, you're dealing with me. But second of all, you know, here we are. This is a horrible situation for a commander. You are being handed six women who have had one week of cultural support training, Mm. zero weeks of combat training of any kind, because we were all women. We had vests, that wouldn't necessarily keep us alive. Oh, explain that story too, just quickly. <laughs> That's a because the the bulletproof vest is this giant plate that sits across and is designed to sit across your entire torso. And this is one of those: if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. Right? Because right? the question is, does this stop bullets? Yes. Therefore, that must be gender neutral. Until a woman like me is getting the brief, and they're explaining that the plate has to sit no more than half an inch from your vital organs. Yeah. And on on any woman, that's going to be impossible. Because of um, their breasts, and, if I can just name it. Correct, correct. And the question is, you have to ask, is this going to keep people alive? Not, is this going to stop the bullet? Because it still stops the bullet on my vest. But the concussion that it's going to create is likely to cause internal bleeding and not keep me alive. Mm-hmm. And so... You get all these women that are pretty much seen as a hindrance to the mission. I sort of personally believe that this was a mission intended to fail, intended to prove that women could not, in fact, do it. Mm -hmm. And all the pseudoscience they thought they believed. Um, Sure enough, it turns out when both men and women are trying to kill you, it's a good idea to have both men and women trying to keep you alive. Sure. And... And he just approached it that way, right? He chose to look at it not, you have minus 13 months of experience that my least trained private has. He chose to look at it as you have a brand new perspective and that's useful in a fight. And the only reason I spoke up because I was not there as an officer. I was there as a woman to speak to the woman. I was not there to to comment on combat operations. The only reason that I spoke up was because that leader made it very clear that he valued my perspective Smart guy. of what was different. 
Smart guy. So listen, we're 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 coming to the last uh, ten minutes or so, but I really want to talk about vets and how there's so many homeless vets and people. And I want to just comment. I interviewed Jason Kander, who was also in Afghanistan and a captain and a, like a politician who was even asked by Obama to consider running as for president. And the guy realized. I have PTSD. I've had it for years. I am not functioning as a as a human being and a father and a husband the way a normal person is. And and so p- please share, you know, it, it, and I want to make the parallel with former members of cults who get out and don't get proper yes. medical, you know, mental health yes. treatment. Um, so I I read his book on your recommendation and I talk to my audience about it all of the time because he talks about in a situation that is very likely to be PTSD inducing. So in a situation that you know is going to have sustained trauma and you're trying to motivate your people through it, one of the tactics is to tell yourself or the people around you that this is not so bad. Um, I was just talking to my husband about this this morning Uh and he was saying, I have flown some of the craziest missions in the world. And at the time I was definitely telling myself, well, other people out there have it worse. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is what cult survivors do and what people who've been under coercive control do. And I think one of the powerful things of uncultured is I did come from one of the worst cults and yet there's so many parallels in my experience to what other people have experienced. And in every case, children and the children of God, adults who grew up in the children of God tell themselves it wasn't so bad Mm -hmm. and, you know, cannot see it. Right. So that is a, a constant tactic. Um, Also, when you mentioned, right, the problem with homeless vets also, all of the problems with veterans fitting back into the world are the exact, I've never found one problem that doesn't also apply to cult survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this would be true for prisoners. I think this would be true for people coming out of gangs or total institutions groups, right? like, or destructive um, cults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if at any point or for whatever reason you've been held separate from the world, mm-hmm. this reintegration takes a lot of time and you also have to process what impacts it had on your personality and how it changed you. Yeah. Um, women veterans tend to suffer five to one to most of the, the veteran struggle issues. So homelessness, PTSD, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And we just a few months ago had a, uh, wounded warrior program survey that put the estimated number of women who have been sexually assaulted at 44%. Mm -hmm. So almost half. I would have thought it was higher. So the interesting thing is that most women I've shared this number with say, I would have thought it was higher. And I personally only know one woman veteran who has not been assaulted. Mm. Um, most men I share it with start questioning the survey methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why oh, they of think the it's culture. too high. You mean? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, so that's a, another big part of the culture. Um, uh, something I think my book did was just admit it. Yeah. And this was part of the parallel that I wanted to show was this concept that humans will do anything to fit in with their voluntary groups Mm. from J. Richard Townsend. Mm. And I was like, I can show you this in a cult that we know is a cult, Mm -hmm. but I can show you just as much sort of wacky group behavior in the military. And honestly, for me, it was very similar being in this environment of you're behind walls, you're not in control, and all of the men around you are dangerous Mm -hmm. to you. Um, While you're being told that they're safe, that they're heroes, that they're your family or your brother. Mm -hmm. So um, talk about in the last few minutes, just um, what it's like to be free of both environments, like no one's telling you what to do. You have a successful book. You're going to write another um, book. You have a, a career path if you 
want to get do consulting work to corporations or other things you know how's life yeah, daniela <laughs> life is great um i make money from my brain at my house and i sell a lot of knitted stuff so yeah talk about your knitting wonderful. you've been knitting while um, we're talking and i've been noticing you on uh, instagram knitting away so to me so knitting has been a stim my whole life it's been something i've always done um and i'm very good at it um but i have had this whole journey. I, I, after I wrote Uncultured and studied organizational psychology and studied social identity theory, learning how people operate in groups was when I realized that part of growing up in a high control environment means you don't get a personality, mm. right? Part of growing up in a cult is I didn't get a childhood. I didn't get to form my own identity. Yeah. And so here I was 33, 34 years old, just who am I? Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, I can make my own wacky outfits. Um, and so a really big part of this has been just like me just being like, no, I'm going to wear this purple, shaggy, shiny thing for fun. Um, and really understanding how appearance and attitude control has been such a big part of my life mm -hmm. up until very recently. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a little rebellion against the conformity of, of, of humanity. You'll, yes, but you'll love this. So on my Etsy shop, my popular items. So I sell crochet earrings. Those are the love bomb earrings. Um, I do a collar, like a crochet necklace. Uh, I call it a descent collar, which is a nod to RBG. But they're also very unique and custom and loud. And I'm like, you know, cults want you to not be an individual right so we are dissenting yep um i do cuffs that match the necklace and i call these the exit cost cuffs um, i love this the, <laughs> there's a coat we call the cult coat i'm gonna do a sleeveless one it's gonna be called the ex-mormon because even when it's cold you still want them to know you're not a mormon because they can see your shoulders uh, I, this is fantastic <laughs> you know humor is such an important part of healing <laughs> laughing having I'm a, fun i'm about to I'm about to knit myself a sweater with one of my favorite sayings, which is if it quacks like a cult. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> I, yeah, that's an old one that I've used for decades. If it quacks like a duck, has feathers like a duck, and waddles like a duck, yep. it probably is a duck. Yep. So listen, so do I'm you gonna, have a web page where you show all your wares, all the things that you're making, or what? So I'm the most active on TikTok, which is where anybody should find me if they want. I also post all my videos on Instagram. Um, on TikTok, I have a, like a store folder where I post all this stuff. Um, also on all my social media, I have like my Etsy link and all of my different. So links. we're going to do a blog based on this and embed the video. And we're going to add all the links for our listeners. If you want to yes. find Daniela um, and all these fun things. I would say whether you're on Instagram or TikTok, hashtag group behavior gal. And you will find me and I will be knitting and talking about cults and group behavior. Uh -huh. Great. So any last words as we wrap up? This has been incredible. Um, I just wanted to say that it was incredible that you said that I taught you something because you have taught me so much and your work is so foundational. You know, I like to say I studied all the greats, Lifton and Singer and Lalek and and. Hassan. Um, Thank you for pronouncing so, my name correctly. That's that's extra kudos. I get scared every time. No, I'm it's say good. It you did it perfectly. And I hope I pronounced Masternick correctly. Did I? Yes. Yay. Yes. That's uh, um, yeah. So yeah, thank you know, thank you for doing this work and for being like the vanguard of the people out there educating people on cults because it has been so transformative for so many people and the cult of trump is still one of my favorite books that i recommend oh everybody. thank you so for me the big lift will be changing the law itself and uh and criminalizing brainwashing and that's going to be a game mm -hmm. changer and i think the military will then have to deal with hmm behavior information thought and emotional control hmm and unless we put in they'll, the... They'll just get an exemption. 
Well, you know, there's what's called the ministerial exemption that allows cults like the Moonies and Scientology and the Children of God, if they're in the United States, to uh, say, well, we're a religion, so it doesn't count. But from my point of view, trafficking is trafficking. Brainwashing is is bad. It's anti-human. So it should be illegal. Well, and so much trafficking is hidden in religion, right? That video of me rapping Bible verses, nobody is looking at that saying, were these children doing this voluntarily? Were these children getting paid? Um, Just looks like shiny white children performing for Jesus. And people need to understand more that that's how that works. Yeah. Are you familiar with Rebecca Bender and uh, Rachel Thomas? Oh, sounds familiar. Check them out on my website. I just posted my interview with Rebecca, who is a sex trafficking survivor and has a course online for survivors of sex trafficking and, and, and labor trafficking. And survivors, you know, I think we have the antibodies to the disease virus of mind control that's afflicting the world. So we have a special... Um, uh, ability to help others to realize this is not normal. This is not healthy. We know what this is. Warning, warning, danger. I call it the cult baby spidey sense. Like you still have to do some study and learn how to recognize it. Uh, But yeah, I've always been able to be like, you know, I knew I didn't like that leader guy. Now I just know how to explain why yeah. like he was malignant and narcissistic and coercive. Right. But even back then, I was just like, this guy gives me the ick. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah, it's great. So, so uh, Daniela Mestanek Young, Uncultured, if you, and just came out in paperback. This is the hardcover, but it just came out in paperback. You have an audio as well, correct? Yes, the uh, the New York Times editor of arts and culture just recommended the audio as one of his favorite things. That is so, so great. And if you're a vet listening to this, check this book out and 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 look for it. hashtag. Say it again. Group think girl. What was it? Group group behavior gal. Group behavior gal. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you again in person. Say hi to your husband. And uh, thanks for being a guest on the Influence Continuum. Thanks so much, Steve. It's always great to chat with you. Great. Me too. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.